Welcome to Planet Poet Words in Space. I'm your host, Sharon Israel, and it's my special pleasure to welcome my in-studio guest, poet, essayist, and translator and teacher, Philip Party, to read from and discuss his, his prize-winning poetry collection, Meditations on Rising and Falling, and to talk about his life as a writer, activist, and teacher. Hi, Philip. Hi, Sharon. Great to have you here. And in person, I can actually look at you across the microphones. Shocking, right? <laughs> and I want to read, let me see, I want to read your bio for everybody. Philip Pardee is the author of Meditations on Rising and Falling, University of Wisconsin Press, which won the Brittingham Prize and the Writers League of Texas Award for Poetry. His poems, essays, and translations have appeared widely in journals and anthologies. His most recent project, completed with the support of the NEA, is a volume of selected translations by the Salvadoran poet Claudia Lars. He teaches at Bard College and serves on the advisory board of LIDE, a nonprofit organization devoted to empowering and educating Haitian girls through the arts. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. And I think we'll start off right off with a poem sure. from your book. Sure. This is a poem I often end uh, a reading with, but I thought I'd begin today. It's called Drinking with My Father in London. With his mate, Wilfred, who was dying, I discussed ornithology as best I could, given the circumstances. My father flushed and silent, a second pint before me, my fish and chips not yet in sight. Condensation covered the windows and in the corner a couple played tic-tac-toe with their fingers. Behind it all, convincingly, the rain fell. The mystery, Wilfred was saying, isn't flight. Flight is easy, he says, lifting his cap. But landing, he tosses his cap at the coat rack. Landing is the miracle. Would you believe thirty feet away the cap hits and softly takes in the loan? bare peg, would you believe no one but me notices? I'd like to come back as a bird, Wilfred says, both hands on the glass before him, and here my father comes to life. You already were a bird once, Wilfred, he says. Next time, next time you get to be the whole damn flock. Mm. That's Philip Party reading his poem, Drinking with My Father in London, from his book Meditations on Rising and Falling. Could you talk about that line a little, Phil, Phil the um, mystery of the landing? It's the mystery of the landing, not the flight. It's a bit of a mystery to me because, in a way, I'm the kind of person who believes that the journey is more important than the destination. Mm. So I would, I think, uh, I, I think I would, I would tend to go the other way. But in the writing of this poem, I think this poem surprised me. Um, I remember when I, when I first drafted it, I told a friend later that day I'd written a strange poem about my father. And I think partly it was I, had, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in that way before. Um, and especially also the ending, what does it mean? It's one thing to come back as a bird, but to come back as a flock of birds. I don't think I'd had that thought ever until I drafted that poem. Mm. And I think that's part of the, I mean, this is a different kind of mystery. Part of the mystery of writing is you find yourself saying things that you hadn't thought before. Mm. That's... Um, Maybe that's a good reason to try and write every day because you never know what you're going to stumble onto. There are plenty of days when you <laughs> stumble true. onto nothing, but there are days when you stumble onto something that you really hadn't thought before, and that's sort of the magic of the, and the mystery of the writing process. It, it seems also that he's 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 expressing his love for him by saying that he's so big. 
that he he needs to come back as a flock of birds. I think perhaps that's right. I think that's right. I think this is ultimately it's a love poem and it's a poem about transcending an ordinary life into something mm-hmm. much larger. And and I think maybe what Wilfred for me what Wilfred is saying that because he's because he's dying that the landing is he's done everything already. He's been in flight and now he's he's going to land somewhere. So he's uh he seems at peace with what with what he's doing, and you, there's a theme here of uh, father and son, and you are there with your father. But it's really about Wilfred. So there's a, a triangle that's going on there. Could you explain the relationship and and I mean not the relationship, well within the poem, sure. Between the two, I think a lot of poetry at its best is a triangulation. There's an there's an observing. Um, there's a poem I've been working on, which was until recently about uh, me and somebody else, and then I bring in a third character. And there's mm-hmm. something about the observation, setting yourself up to look at a pairing that I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Then you're you're almost immediately watching something in motion, in process, the world unfolding. And I'm, I think when I was, I know my sense of what a poem is changes all the time. But I remember when I was working on these early, these poems. Uh, I thought of poems as kinds of excavations of moments, um, mm-hmm. um, but moments aren't static; they're they're very much fluid. Um, and so, watching watching two people is more interesting than watching one. At least that was that would have been uh-huh. my that would have been my position back then. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with watching <laughs> just one person, but there's a different kind of potentiality that comes into view. Right, yeah. things might change. You're observing a relationship, right, rather than being in primarily in that relationship with with the observed or with the beloved mm-hmm. or whatever the other is at that time. And there's an echo between the three characters, of course. That's unexpected. That's unexpected. Um, and the poem reflects the book's title. I mean, meditation, meditation on rising and falling, which bird landing and flying and flying and landing. So I guess that was, well, this is the second poem it in is. the book. The, the interesting story about the, both the title and the order is that I couldn't, when I was working on this book, I couldn't do it myself. Uh, I, I was really stuck in figuring out the order, and I didn't know what the title should be. And I sent it, I sent it to a friend of mine, my friend Steve Gerke, who's a wonderful poet, and he sent it back to me. Uh, he sent back the exact same poems, but in four sections. Mm. Um, he, he chose the title poem. Um, he took out one poem that he didn't like. He put a poem in that I had cut that he remembered liking. <laughs> and the next place I sent it uh, was Wisconsin, and it was and it was taken. Oh, that's one, what so a great it, story! But it's a good it's a good example of um, the sometimes you're too close to your work yes. to see some of the, the the arc, you know. And those moments, the creative, the mind that's active and maybe um, uh, in motion when you're creating something is a different kind of mind than the organizing or editing. Oh, mind. it's different. It's you know? different. I often think about the Beatles. The Beatles, I love the second side of Abbey Road, which is this medley of short pieces. And they were all written as short pieces. And only later did someone, did they come along and figure out the exact order to put mm-hmm, them in mm-hmm. and how to segue them together. And so I just, it's a good reminder that the, the composing mind is different than the editing mind. And in some sense, as a writer, you try to keep them apart because either one could spoil the other. They each need their mm-hmm. moment. Absolutely. And it's, there's a similar arc when, uh, when a singer creates a concert. There has to be contrast between the pieces. You have to keep your audience on edge for one and then have them relax for another one. So the next, you can, it's a, it's a total arc of, of, 
of uh, rising and falling in that kind of experience. Yeah, I think both the creative process ebbs and flows in that mm-hmm, way, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and ideally you set that up for the, for the audience as well. I had a playwriting teacher years ago who told me that he had two desks. He had one desk for writing, and he wrote in the mornings and drank coffee. And he had a different desk for revising, and he revised, and he ate M&Ms. Oh, that's and so I thought great. that that remains a good model for me of like, <laughs> well, I'm at, I'm at my M&M desk brush, so I really should be trying to come up with anything new. And this is strictly about revising. I have, I have two desks, too, one for my radio show and one for my writing, but I think I need three more desks. You know what? <laughs> Phil, would you read us another poem, please? This is the next poem. It's called Leaving Angelo. How long, he says, does it take, he says, to drive? Four days, I say, seven states. I always liked, he says, a drive, he says. His every sentence incised by commas of air begged off thin blue tubes. Once we drove, he says, to Florida. So many, so many dead deer, but beautiful, the trees. By the window, his lover holds his own hand. The hum of hospital voices continues its slender recital as we watch Angelo breathe. He offers a smile, like here, he says, and nods to the screen of odd parabolas rising beside him. It's my dashboard, he says, and this, he says, twitching his nose so the tubes are raised in relief. This is the wind in my face. The horror of how we go on. Near Philly, a fan belt snaps. We lose two days. In a Motel 6 in Arkansas, my son takes his first fertile steps. Home again after seven days, an answering machine awaits, alive with lights. That's Leaving Angelo, by, read by uh, Philip Party. It's his poem. That is such a poignant poem, and the the rhythm of it is um, so interesting. The way the speaker the speaker narrates, but he also has the person who's who's sick talking with this rhythm of labored breath, and that's. Uh, could you describe? Could you talk about that? How you did that? You know, this gets to the heart of what I love about poetry, actually. It's a, it's a lovely question. There used to be a, a book, um, an early book about poetry called How Does a Poem Mean? As opposed to, you can see it's getting away from what does a poem mean, what does it say, yes. how does it mean? Um, and there's a famous story about Frost where he's describing some aspect of one of his poems, and a woman says, well, but surely, Mr. Frost, you're not thinking about those kinds of things when you're writing your beautiful poems. And Frost says, Madam... I revel in them. You know, he's he's deeply immersed in the technique of it and in the how putting together the how mm-hmm. of the poem. Um, it, it strikes me that the, the contrast with, with a, an article in the in the newspaper is interesting. We, we you don't often go back to a newspaper article in the Times, say, to re-experience it. You might go back to check a fact or a story, mm-hmm. but you don't go back to re-experience mm-hmm. it. But we go back to poems to re-experience them, to live them again and again, many many times. And that's because this gets to your to your point. The the sounds and the rhythms and the repetitions of the poem are part of the experience of the poem. And they can, as in this case, they can sort of mimic or work uh, in, in line with the world of the poem, or they can rub against it, mm-hmm. right? They can, do many, they can do many things. But at least part of what a poem is is 
the how, the how of it. Yes. As soon as you, as soon as you come to a word like stone or or rock, you go in different places, right? The sound, the sound of it is very different. Yeah. Um, the hum of hospital voices, the way uh, you compare the car to the and the the speaker and the the person who's who's tied tied to all these tubes it's his dashboard and then you have the car at the end of the near the end of the poem uh, that's the uh, fan belt breaks and snaps and we lose two days so there's a there's so much uh imagery and sound that is evocative but not necessarily linear in this poem i think i like i like it in poems when things become other things and that's in part the magic of poetry mm -hmm. that's um that's what metaphor is or simile right um and here i think the gesture is that angelo becomes in a sense the poet in this poem yes he, he gets he makes the metaphor he makes the leap between the parabolas on the screen to mm -hmm. um so things becoming other things is i think part of the province of poetry and it's a great it's a great power and it's a kind of magic actually i think you know and you have the stillness and movement, which is sort of like the rising and falling of the meditation. Um, uh, each poem works well with, with the title in different, in different ways. I want to read the, uh, the comments on the back cover of Meditations that's written by David St. John, who's a poet and also was the judge of the Brittingham Prize, which you won for this book. A truly exceptional volume of poems Wry, wise, and powerful, this work offers highly nuanced sketches and shrewdly observed scenes of profound human reckoning. With a child's awe and adult's caution and compassionate care, the speaker in these calm and elegantly philosophical poems wins our trust time and time again. The measured lyric ease of these poems is matched only by their superb tonal complexity and masterful celebratory Ease. I love that. Uh, yeah, I love that. It's, it's very true. Did you know S David St. John at all? I knew his work, certainly. Uh -huh. he's, I mean, if, if, if folks don't know him, he's really uh, a wonderful poet. He has an early book called In the Pines, which I had, had known at the time, and I think since then has come out with a book called The Auroras, which uh, I highly recommend. Uh, really wonderful lyric poet. Phil, would you read another from the book, Meditations on the Ego? Yes, this is, this is a part of a series of meditations, and the first one is called Meditation on the Ego. Three sounds descending must land, even if the mind wrinkles to catch them. Already alive, they are reborn. Let me tell you about the ego, they say. Imagine pages, loose and scattered, the reader stepping from one to the next, at times over a great distance, cobbling together a sequence. The wind revealing flip sides with graphs or maps, page numbers in cuneiform. The ego is the part of you that fails to notice birds are watching. That's Philip Hardy reading his poem, Meditation on the Ego. I mean, all of these, the first two poems, there's bearing witness, and you're in many ways. But in this poem, the birds are watching birds bear witness and is that are you saying the ego prevents prevents the the person from exploring what's around 
him or her? Yeah, I, th- I think what, what comes to my mind is I think a lot of poetry for me, and maybe a lot of living life to me right now, uh, is about paying attention. Um, it's really the call to pay mm-hmm, attention. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't go into nature um, and pretend like you're the only sentient being. Mm-hmm. You can't go into nature pretend you're the only one who's who's doing the seeing. You enter a scene and you change it immediately. You enter and you're observed. Um, so maybe it's a gesture towards um, the the complexity of the world, which is always escaping us. And even if you latch on, if you pay attention to one thing, you're paying attention to the flowers and you don't realize that there's a mosquito biting your hand. It's, it's a, the world is endlessly complex and poetry is a, always an attempt to get part of it right. Um, but we're always, it's always an act of reaching and we're never going to quite grasp it because uh, it is in some sense beyond language. I'm not saying anything new here, you know. Um, but, but also beyond, the, you have to sort of put your ego aside too when you're writing in a way. You, you have do. to. You do. And I think you have to realize that it is a constant, it's a constant renewal of the attempt. I mean, um, I think it's an important reminder of what we're doing when, we're, when you're writing a poem. I mean, if something flies by and you say it raced by, it flew by, it sped by, it galloped by, it cantered by, it gambled by, mm-hmm. all those might seem accurate in the moment, but each of them is an attempt. Each of them is an interpretation of that moment. And... Um, whatever it manages to say, it leaves out something, and so it's a good room. And that's not that's not a it's not a problem. It's, it shouldn't stop us, but it should remind us that every poem is itself uh, an interpretation. It's our interaction with nature, and uh, we can continue to try to get close, um, but in some sense, we are always but apart. And you may think you may think the scene is under your control, and yet you're not aware that there are birds watching you from the from the underbrush. From the underbrush, yeah, not from the trees, from the underbrush. Well, wherever, wherever <laughs> they may be, if you can't see them, I'm you don't know where they are. Yeah, I'm fascinated yeah. by the underbrush. Yeah. During a storm, they'll go into the underbrush. Um, you have talked about the work of bearing witness in art and life. I just want to say that in terms of your work in El Salvador, you were working two years in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to read, before we comment on... Um, you had a uh, very interesting interview with uh, uh, Susan Briante, and this is her quoting you. I mean, this is my, my quote of you from her interview. Mm-hmm. In political work, you really need to keep things simple, keep the message clear. If you're su- suing a farm owner for mistreating his workers, there isn't much room for understanding the owner's plight. You owe it to the workers to pursue justice on their behalf. That, at least, was my experience of it. So when I burnt out and returned to writing poetry, it was partly a desire to honor the subtleties of the world. But I'm not quite sure I've forgiven myself for ceasing to be an activist. And how does that, I mean, you bear witness when you were in El Salvador. Uh, you, you did bear witness constantly, probably, of what was going on, and uh, aside from your, your role in it. But that was not the same as writing a poem about it. Right. Yeah, I did I did say that. I'm not sure quite sure I forgive myself for ceasing to be an activist and I think that's probably true in some sense, although I'm not really that hard on myself, so maybe I have forgiven myself. Mm-hmm. I mean I think my heroes in the world are probably more the activist types than, than poets in terms of what the world needs are I mean, we should be clear that uh, the activists in this world are essential, you know, whether they're fighting against militarism, fighting against um, climate change, 
um, mm-hmm. you know, there was an old bumper sticker I used to love, which said something like, uh, thanks to the labor movement, the folks who brought you the weekend. I mean, so much of what we mm-hmm. have today and take for granted was won by struggles of activists earlier. But I think your question reminds me of, of why I love teaching poetry, which is I think teaching poetry teaches students not to flee from the complexity or the nuance or the ambiguities of the world. Um, it models a kind of leaning in no matter how difficult the world is. And that was certainly my experience was poetry is a way to think about uh, two, three, four sides of the same situation. Mm-hmm. It's one reason why I like writing longer poems because long poems let you really get at multiple, you know, you kind of, you think about a short poem is maybe you put the tripod somewhere vis-a-vis the, the, the cathedral, but with a longer poem you can kind of take mm-hmm. a bunch of different, you can walk all the way around it and you can, you can carry the camera around and get a bunch of different, bunch of different perspectives. Um, Roque Dalton, the Salvadoran poet, talks about how the poet should be a scrutinizer uh, of, mm-hmm. of their times. Um, and that seems right. Although I will just add to that, though, that I'm very wary of there being too many shoulds in poetry. I mean, when you sit down in the quiet of your morning, or in my case, in the morning and write, it feels as much as a listening as it does of a conscious exertion. It feels like only part of it is under my control. So I, I think there's room in the world for many kinds of poetry. Uh, and I would never say you, we need to write this or that kind. Um, I think uh, the best days are when you get to follow the poem wherever it leads, mm-hmm. you know. To wander through, to let it wander, let your mind wander or your unmind, whatever whatever it is. But the subtleties, you talk about the many facets of looking at something, that that encompasses subtleties more than just a, one view, one point of view. I th- yeah, I think that's true, and I think um, more and more I feel called to pay at- to pay attention. And but that's a very broad um, demand that you can pay attention inwardly to your own inward process and your mm-hmm. own inward sense of things, and kind of honor where you're at. You can pay attention outwardly to the world, to others. Uh, paying attention is a pair of words that can articulate a very broad kind mm-hmm. of engagement with with the world. Right. You had mentioned to me that. It has taken you a while to digest what you experienced in El Salvador to write about to write about it. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I when I came back from El Salvador and I and um, and then did organizing work with migrant farm workers, um, and eventually kind of went back full time. I say full time to poetry, making it the mm-hmm. center of my day. Say I wasn't exactly able to work on it full time, um, and. There's very little of El Salvador in my first book, the Meditations on Rising and Falling. I think I was too close to it, maybe, and also had very strong opinions about it. And um, it's really hard to write a, you know, John Keats, the poet, has this wonderful line where he says, we resist a poem that has a palpable design on us. You know, if you feel like you're being led to something mm-hmm. very directly, we resist that. That's, there's, a rule, there's a role for that in the world, but it's really hard to write a good poem, for me at least. It's very hard to write a good poem that does that. And I feel like with El Salvador especially, as long as my, my yearnings and my sense of right and wrong and my memories were so clear, it was very hard to figure out how to write a good poem. I tried I wrote lots of not good poems, you know, lots <laughs> of false starts, right? Um, and it was, it's only been, you know, 20 years after being in El Salvador, and now it's getting more closer to 30, that um, maybe I've forgotten enough of the details that I can lean into the parts that really feel emotionally true to me. That's so yeah. fascinating that you have to forget some things in order to 
to recover other things or approach other things. I think it points to the fact that I'm most comfortable uh, as a poet when I am allowed to make some things up, mm-hmm. you know. And so once you forget, then you have permission to kind of, and you have to be, you have to be upfront and transparent about what you're doing. Don't, don't, don't present your memories as truths, or you know. But, um, but yeah. There's different kinds of truths too in making things. Right, and I think poetry lives. I mean, Mike's my sense of the poetry that I'm really drawn to certainly as a writer, is poetry lives in that place of something that did happen or might have happened or should have happened or almost happened. And the question isn't so much, did it happen? Poetry for me lives at its best in the kind of circle that includes all of those things. And it's not so much, did it happen? It's just that, does it feel like a Mm -hmm. thing that's worth experiencing and contemplating as a thing that might have happened? That might have happened. It certainly might have happened. Would you read your poem, Watching, which also is a poem about bearing witness? And this kind of ambiguity of, well, we'll talk more about that after you read it. Yeah, this is actually the poem I had in mind when I said before, that a poem that began uh, uh, with the speaker and one person and then becomes much more complicated, called Watching. We were eating a bunch of us after work, and I was watching Jorge as he waited on two tables across from ours, a group we'd seen drive up in two oversized cars. Watching as he waited first on the adults, then on the boys, flush, all of them with the excitement of being together, of being apart from their parents, a rare, sweet power. Soon they are emptying sugar into spoons, then they are burning the packets with candles, all of this hidden by menus. The fathers are arguing about football, the boys about heat, about how long each could keep a hand above the flame. Jorge is being careful, wary of elbows that swing out. Suddenly, suddenly, one boy goes too far, pushes his chair back, and Jorge's load of drinks lands everywhere. A father is up quickly. What the hell is going on down there? He half screams, half whispers, striding up, napkin in hand. At my table, the talk stops. Across from me, Mars' eyes go wide. There's a line I want to step back over, but on the side where we find ourselves, we are, all of us, looking. And the boy is cowering, hiding his hand, the fear in his face hard to miss. And Jorge doesn't miss it. I see that he knows instantly what that look knows, imagines what this must lead to. What the hell is going on? And the boy is about to reply, but it's Jorge who replies. It's on me, he says, my fault. And turning to the boy, he asks, Are you okay? And even as he leans in to clean up, even as the din of eating resumes all around, even as the manager is over to apologize, and the father is saying, They shouldn't be allowed across the border if they can't at least wait tables. Several things are happening so that the story I thought was ending is unfolding still. As Jorge fishes together a handful of ice cubes, and wraps them in a napkin for the boy to cool his palm. And Mar is doing something I can't quite see, and it's not till we're leaving that she is looking over her shoulder, then showing me what she has slipped into a napkin, into her lap, into her coat, a steak knife. Sharp enough for steak, she says, sharp enough for tires. Hmm. That's Phil Party reading his prose poem watching and there's such compassion in this poem 
and it it transcends ethnicity and and it, it shows a tremendous commonality about fear and and protection and compassion within the, within the poem and the speaker is watching everybody not mm-hmm. just you know he's watching everybody and in this revised version it's his friend who takes who takes the the steak knife and at the end of the poem it's open ended we don't know what's going to happen at the end is what you were talking about before Phil yeah, I think uh, the earlier version of this poem is the speaker in the poem. I, mean, I take for granted that the speaker of the poem isn't necessarily me. But even mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. reading this poem, I read it at a reading not long ago, and um, the the idea that the eye of the poem was taking taking action. This, so this this version of the poem, the eye of the poem, is uh, somewhat paralyzed by the situation. Mm-hmm. It, is actually wants to go backwards in time. There's a little bit of. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a little bit of complicity, but there's a little bit of paralysis there. And again, maybe with Angelo giving, uh, what does it mean to, to bear witness to somebody else who does spring into action and who does decide that this is a moment for action? Um, that seems like an important uh, differentiation to make somehow. Uh, I'm interested in, in other poems as well, in the way that we get paralyzed, unable to mm-hmm. act when the world desperately needs action. So this poem became more as much about that as about the kind of overt act of violence that's at the middle of it. And I think, you know, partly, uh, I'm sure this poem is responding in, in part to the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric that's been so much in the news for years oh, now. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's nothing new, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it, the volume has been turned up, you know, and that, um, you know, at the heart of this poem is an act of care, caring, generosity. Yes. And it's, and it's Jorge. Right, it's Jorge who embodies the, that, that those, Definitely. those and the, the oppression is from the father, of course. And uh, but I think the speaker, as you said, is overwhelmed with there's a tremendous anxiety because the speaker says several things are happening, so that the story I thought was ending is unfolding. So is a is a continuity there that is confusing. I think the speaker. Yeah, I way. think if you think the story is ending, then you're absolved of acting. If you yes. recognize the story is just beginning, then there is at least the possibility of acting. And the speaker doesn't in this poem doesn't doesn't take that step, but somebody else does. So it becomes about somebody, like I said, somebody somebody leaping into action and understanding that actually we we all have a role to play. I, I'm not sort of the poem doesn't take a stand on whether what that action is correct or not or right or wrong, you know. Well, whether it actually happened. I mean, whether she takes she takes the knife. But you don't know if she goes through with it. You don't know. She's talking about slashing yeah. tires, but you don't mm-hmm. you don't know what happens. Philip, this is a prose poem. How would you would not say this is a piece of creative nonfiction, which you have written about this environment in the Catskills and other things? Correct. I, I mean, I think some of these definitions are, you know, clear in the extremes, but the the middle ground gets kind of blurry. I mean, to me. When you're writing a poem that has lines, I mean, the only the difference between a poem and lines and a prose poem, the, the one difference is that the line ending. And mm-hmm. so when you move to prose, you're giving up this one gesture, which is actually pretty um, powerful because it's, I think as soon as you open up a page, open to a page and there's a poem in lines, you become aware you're going to experience time differently. Time is going to be measured out in a, in a, in a particular way. Um, the pace is going to be different than, than real life. Um, and there are going to be these breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a certain kind of invitation. 
um, and it's a real tool. It's one, one of the many tools. When you move to a prose poem, that's the only thing you really lose is that everything else you have, you have going. The um, language is heightened. The language it's, is heightened. It's it becomes yeah, and it and it's as much a spir- an experience that is you're bringing to life an experience in language because it's it's language on the page, but also it's an, it's an experience of language. The, the language itself, as we said before, is contributing to um, what and how the poem is unfolding, and the sounds, the rhythm, the repetitions. Um, the echoes, uh, all, all, the, all the choices that a poet makes to the point where not a single syllable at some point has not been thought mm-hmm. over three, four, five, a half dozen times. Right, right. it's not just a narrative piece. It's, it twists the narrative into something more or exactly. excuse yeah. it. And, and, it's, and it can be done in, in many different ways. Like I, it, it can, the, all those sonic effects can reinforce or speed up the poem in a way that is in, working with what the poem is saying, or they can work in contrast, you know. Um, and that's how you get a very complex, uh, the complex layering mm-hmm. that becomes. And those are the points we return to because we're trying to we're trying to figure out um, how all these different pieces fit together to create an experience. You know, reality is complicated. Our experiences are complicated, and so it shouldn't be a surprise that at some level, uh, poems are complex, right? To try and capture some of that. Mm, I like right? that. That's There's great. a wonderful poem by Yeats. It's a love poem about a love gone awry, and I think the last line is something like. Uh, uh, he who made this knows all the cost for he gave all for love and lost. And so it's a sad poem about the loss of love. But that last line, for he gave all for love and lost, it kind of is sing-songy. And so you, you have this sort of, it's a bit of a contrast between what the poem is saying, what the poem is doing. And, it, and to, that makes the poem feel kind of sardonic almost. It makes it very mm-hmm. complicated. There's a, you can feel the attempt to make the poem sing-songy, but... It's not quite working right. because the poems, the last word of the poem is lost. Right, but um, it's a cheerful cadence, so it's exactly, unusual. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Philip, you are also a translator. And did you find the, po- the poet Claudia, Claudia Lars when you were in El Salvador? How did you hear of her? Could you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so before I went to El Salvador, I was studying Spanish with a tutor who was himself Salvadoran, a lovely man named Alejandro. And he would bring me all kinds of things to read as part of my learning Spanish, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them was a series of short stories by Claudia Lars. So I met her first as a short story writer. And she has a book of stories, Land of Childhood, Tierras del Infancia, which are um, about growing up in rural El Salvador. And it's, it's read in many schools, and it's um, kind of very well known. So when I was in El Salvador um, with the human rights group I was working with, Peace Brigades, uh, one day I went to the, to the bookstore looking for that. And they didn't have it, but they had all these books of poems. And I was mm. just sort of, uh, that was where I learned that she was a poet. And I uh-huh. pulled the poems off. And not only, you know, one of, one of the short stories actually is about being a young child and seeing a salamander in the fire. And she went running to her father and says, Father, I just saw this thing in the fire. It's like a lizard or something. And her father says, no, what you saw was the salamander. And what it means is that you're going to be a poet. You're meant to be a poet. And she's a young girl at the time. So I knew that story. And here I was, and I found the, the collected works, and it was two volumes of collected poems. Uh, and so I was, I was struck with the before, the before and after. You know? So I became fascinated by, by that, how that happened. Mm. Turns out she is probably El Salvador's most beloved poet in mm. El Salvador. There were schools named after her. There was a postage stamp with her face on it. You know? she, um, she was born in 1899 and died in 1974. Um, 
and uh, left behind a remarkable mm-hmm. body of work. So I just became fascinated. I first started translating her work to share with friends and at mm-hmm. readings and then decided to keep going with it. It's an amazing image, the, sal- the salamander in the fire. It sort of reminds me of watching of the, the, the children playing with fire and trying to mm. you know, avoid hurting themselves. is <laughs> a theme of fire in your work. Um, would you read your translation of Sentinel for us? Sentinel. The water carrier and his starry river. I, living the night, not quite the angel, but already keeping watch. An unknown planet, my human heart. Discovered, lost, discovered again. An unknown planet, my human heart. It's so beautiful. There's a great humility in her work, and she has another poem that ends something like, um, perhaps I should burn all my books and learn from herbs and leaves the lesson I still haven't learned. So she's very, mm. she's really ready to learn from from the cosmos, and I think that was something that really attracted oh. me to her. Um, well, it's a the water carrier, the constellation, and there's more watching in this in this poem also. There's watching, witness. and there's also this sort of looking out into the night, but then also going into the heart. Right, the poem begins the water carrier and his starry river. That's looking, I, mm-hmm. I take it as looking, you know, I living the night, not quite the angel, but already keeping watch. And then the turn inward, an unknown planet, my human mm. heart, right? So there's the leap within the poem, yeah. discovered, lost, discovered again. It's almost like learning the, from, it's almost like learning from the cosmos how to look within, learning about yourself mm-hmm. by looking outward, which I think is a probably valuable lesson for all of us. There's a quote that you, you, you um, mentioned uh, that translation is the closest act of reading um, quotes by David Ferry. Could you speak about that a little? Yeah. The, um, by the time you're done, I'm done translating a poem I haven't memorized, and it's because you have to think and rethink every potential dimension of every potential mm-hmm. word, so you have to really get inside it. So translation is an invitation to do that kind of work. And speaking of subtleties, there are so many subtleties and barriers between one language and another. So it's not, not exact parallel. It has to be, well, it has to be sort of parallel, but not exact, I guess. You talk, uh, you say that translation has taught me patience. I think when I first turned to translation and would spend just hours and hours and hours on such a short piece of <laughs> Spanish verse to try and make it sound both honor the Spanish, but also sound like a poem in English. Um, I realized, wow, if I'm spending that much time on four lines from Claudio Lars or Jaime Sabines or somebody else, I, I should spend at least that much time on my own poems, right? <laughs> so there, there is a way, it's both, it teaches me patience, but also a kind of comfort with the fact that um, we're just, we just, you keep trying to get it right until it sounds mm. right in your ear. And Would you read the poem in Spanish for us and then again in English? That would be great. Vigilante. El portador del agua y su río celeste, yo viviendo la noche, siempre menor que el ángel, pero ya sentinela. Un planeta recóndito, mi corazón humano. Lo descubro, lo pierdo, y vuelvo a descubrirlo. Sentinel. The water carrier and his starry river, I living the night, not quite the angel, but already keeping watch. An unknown planet, my human heart. Discovered, lost, discovered again. 
Thank you, Phil. It's beautiful. Um, you had mentioned that uh, Claudia Lars translated Dickinson. That was a discovery. Yeah, I didn't know that until I, I think I found an interview when I was doing research in El Salvador. I found an interview with her when she talked about this translating Dickinson. Um, her poems a little like a little Dickinsonian, also. Some of them it, are. Yeah. I mean, she and she also was reading Whitman. I think before Whitman was readily available. So the thing about Claudia Lars I didn't mention, I guess, is that her father was Irish American. <laughs> so this, this is a whole other reason why she's fascinating. <laughs> is her father was born in Scranton of Irish immigrants. He worked his way down with the Central American Railroad to El Salvador. That Fell is in love weird. With, it's, <laughs> And fell in love with Claudia Lars's mother. And Claudia Lars, I should also say, is a pen, pen, pen name for, for Carmen, Carmen Brannon Vega. Um, and, uh, yeah, so um, her father figures largely as a large figure in, in her work. And so she was raised bilingual. She, she obviously spoke Spanish. She was raised by her father to speak English. She, was, mm. she, taught, she learned French in Catholic school. So she was reading Jules Verne and Shakespeare and uh, Whitman. Um, in, in the originals as part of her education. Wow. She was a voracious reader. Her father was a voracious reader and very yeah. philosophical man. So she was, it's a really interesting confluence of, of influences. It's hard sometimes to, to tease out where an image mm -hmm. might have come from or where she might have been inspired. Well, you also have a confluence of influences and, and interests. And you wrote this spectacular um, article in the American Poetry Review called Emily Dickinson and the Presence of Poetry or Responding to Distance by Leaning In. And uh, I wanted to quote from, from your article, I like to think of poetry as the oldest way known to humans, short of walking, to overcome distance, presence-making language. Could mm -hmm. you talk about that? Would you talk about that, Phil? I think so. I'll say two things. In Dickinson's case, what I was really tracing in that essay is the way that even before she turned her attention to poetry or wrote the poetry that we now remember uh, in her letters, for example, she's very intent on setting up, making herself palpably present to her reader of her letters by describing that I'm sitting here and I'm just in from doing some weeding or she's bringing that to life. And she also spends a lot of time imagining her reader. I can imagine you, you're at your desk or you're, you know. Mm. And so it seemed like to me that even before she gets to writing poems in a, in a major way, uh, she conceives of writing as a way to bridge a gap, to, to a, a lie, a distance. And so that's a habit of mind that I think she then brings to poems. Um, and a lot of her poems really, many people have talked about this. When you read her poems, you often feel like she's talking to you. There's a, there's a sense of direct address in there, which is not unique to her. It's part of the lyric tradition, but she brings up very much, mm -hmm. very much to life. Um, and she taps into a whole reservoir of tools that poets have at their disposal to make a poem come to life in the moment of reading a poem. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm teasing out mm -hmm. uh, in her. And again, that, those, are, those are aspects of the lyric tradition that both before and after Dickinson, she happens to do it, uh, to do it very well. Well, when you, when you um, in your uh, poem, uh, Leaving Angelo, you have, the, you have Angelo as breathing, his labored breathing, or his his short phrases and you when the when the reader reads the poem you have to you have to pause and in dickinson with the dashes and her other odd odd at the time punctuation you have to live it you have to relive it and i really love that from your article because reading uh, dickinson out loud out loud gave me a whole new under way of understanding her and um 
you uh, in the article you talk about Jonathan this uh, uh, Jonathan Culler. Mm. It talks about how re- each reading is a re-performance, and not for communicative purposes. Even though there's a tremendous relationship between the poet and the and the reader. Could you, would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll give you an example or two. I mean, in Dickinson, there's a lovely example. She has a poem that begins, What would I give to see his face? And it, it, the he is indeterminate. It could be a lover. It could be Jesus. It could be God. It could be poetry. Mm-hmm. So what would, I give, what would I give to see his face? I'd give, and there's a dash, I'd give my life, of course. And so wow. what would I give to see his face? I'd give. I, now, so every time you read that poem, you are reliving that moment of pausing to find the right continuation of that sentence, right? What would I give to see his face? I'd give, I'd give my life, of course. So the poem, it isn't, even though the poem, uh, you know you're reading someone else's poem, you bring to life that moment of indecision, that moment of, of reaching for the right, for the right, um, the right sentence. But there's a, the, the, maybe my favorite example comes from uh, the poet John Keats. He has this early sonnet called On First Looking Into Chapman's Homer, which is a sonnet about reading the works of Homer in a new translation by Chapman, new to him, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Chapman. Um, and the first part of the poem, the, the octave of the, of the sonnet, the first eight lines, set up kind of reading as a kind of travel, as a kind of journey. And then the, the, the sestet, the last six lines, he turns to describing what is it like to read uh, Chapman's version of Homer. And first he gives, here's a first attempt. He says, Then felt I like some watcher of the skies, when some new planet swims into his ken. Mm. So for two lines, he says, okay, maybe it's like being an astronomer and you're looking up and a new planet comes into view, right? That's, but then that apparently isn't good enough because <laughs> then he says, or, and or is maybe the most overlooked word in all of poetry, <laughs> or like stout Cortez, and he has in mind the first person, it wasn't Cortez, he's wrong, but he has in mind the first person who's who, first European who traveled across the Americas to see the Pacific, or like stout Cortez, when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other in a wild surmise, silence on a peak in Darien. So mm-hmm. he, we, we first get this, this two-line attempt as an astronomer, which gets put aside for this longer version, which is honored. Keats clearly prefers it when it's longer. It, come, it also it comes second. Um, and you can see why. In the first version, the planet is moving, but in the second version, it's the explorer who is, who is doing the mm-hmm. moving, right? It's also that second version, the astronomer is, is solitary. The second version, the, the explorer is, is in the company of others. It's a social event. Yeah. And Cortez, in, this, in the conceit of this poem, is seeing the Pacific. His men are seeing him. They're in a wild surmise, seeing the look on his face while he's looking at the it's Pacific. So complicated. It's very complicated, right? So, so Keats has moved from a simple to a much more complicated metaphor for what reading Homer in translation is like, right? Now, if all he cared about was getting it right, he would have gotten rid of the astronomer and just given us six lines about Cortez. But he left that stutter step in there. So just like with Dickinson, every time we read the poem, we re-inhabit, we relive, we re-inscribe that moment of trying one thing and then going to something else in the now of our own Mm -hmm. reading. So that's what color is pointing to. The now of my reading brings to life that same moment of discovery of a better way of rendering it. Yeah, he's almost thinking out loud, Keats. He it's breaks a, the wall somehow in that poem. Right. And I just think it's important to realize that Dickinson and Keats, they could have gotten rid of those attempts if yeah. what they cared about was just getting it right in some, some sense. But what they're interested in doing, I think, and what the lyric does so well is trace the way our thinking moves forward mm-hmm. through time. You know? And give space to allow the reader to think his own thought, her own thoughts until it 
continues again in the Dickinson. Exactly. Basically. Right. And so we, 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 we experience that every, every time we come to a poem. And then again, that's why I think we return to poems. Uh, we don't return to news articles, which, are, which bring us information and nothing more. Thank you, Philip. That is lots of food for thought for me <laughs> and for, for all of our listeners. It's wonderful. We're running out of time. You have to come back, and there's so much more to talk about. Um, before you read uh, another poem, um, would you tell us how to, if people are interested, how they can find your book and other links? Yeah, so I'm a poet without a website or without any uh, social media presence. You know, I would encourage you to, the book, Meditations on Rising and Falling, to buy, if you live in the Woodstock area, by all means, go to the Golden Notebook in Woodstock, sure. my great, favorite, my great favorite notebook. bookstore. There's also, if you don't know, there's a online um, uh, book, is it called, I'm blanking on the name, Bookshop or BookSense. There's an online um, equivalent for, to Amazon, um, which is independent bookstores. I think it's called Bookshop, mm-hmm. bookshop.com. Where you can order it and independent bookstores benefit from those purchases. Um, no, I have no, uh, I'll be up tomorrow morning to write and see where it goes. That's the next, <laughs> that's all I have on my agenda as a poet. <laughs> we haven't even touched on your, te- on your teaching at Bard slightly. That's for another time. Would you end with a poem, please? Either- Sorry, this is the most uh, recent poem that I've been working on. It's called, just called Poem right now. Tonight, I'm sure the moon is taking notes. We are all of us in someone's ledger, sums and means. Seen from a distance, our lives look very much the same. Up close, we notice the small, the eye that squints to glimpse what might be there. The arc of a thrown stone, the way she's made of a scar, a fish-shaped tattoo. I want to believe in reincarnation, but I have a few questions. Is it linear, for example? Might I return as an 8th century Chinese poet? Then, as now, I'd promise not to ask for much, to have an hour now and then for words, to bury my parents and never bury a child, to feel briefly useful. The drought would come, and we'd cross the Yellow River, then move south. Not all of us would make it. When the rebels saw how little we owned, they would leave us in peace, and we'd laugh at the way of things. That is poem by Philip Party. Philip, thank you so much for a beautiful, beautiful show. (laughs) 